if you've been coming to any of our sites over the last sort of year and a half or so, you will know that we've been, on and off, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels that tell about the story of Jesus, of his life and of his earthly ministry and of his death and resurrection. And we've been going through in some detail, passage by passage, verse by verse, looking at, at this Gospel. Uh, and, and it's been amazing, uh, the things that we've been learning, things that God has been showing us and how, how God has been opening up and, and just magnifying Jesus, really, for us as a church. As the, as the slogan says, it's all about Jesus. So it's been fantastic to spend this time uh, focusing on him. And um, if you've been around over the last sort of couple of months in particular, uh, you'll know that we've been going through sort of chapters 11 to 13. So we're kind of about the middle of the book at the moment, chapters 11 to 13. And Jesus has been teaching his disciples and teaching the crowds who've been coming to see him. And he, he's been explaining about the kingdom of God. He's introduced us to this idea of the kingdom of God and how a person, how you or I can enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus has been talking about. And I don't know about you, but I've found it pretty challenging stuff. I found some of the, some of the, the, the preachers, some of the passages we've been looking at have been, have been challenging stuff. Uh, we've heard time and time again from Jesus the amazing offer that he gives us of entrance to the kingdom of God. But what we've also heard from him is, is warning after warning not to reject his offer. So this offer is available to us, but he's, he's warned us again and again not, not to reject it. And he hasn't really shied away from uh, painting quite vivid pictures about what the alternatives are to accepting his offer of the kingdom. We've had warning after warning of that. And, uh, and it's been clear that God's invitation of mercy, of, of entrance into the kingdom, is available to each of us. It's available to us all. It's available to the whole world, but only for a finite time. And, and none of us are really aware how long that time is. This is the picture that Jesus has been painting for us. So last week we were hearing about how we need to make every effort to enter through the narrow door because we don't know exactly how long the door will stay open for. And I don't know about you, but if, if in case there was any danger, I guess, of us starting to think, well, this isn't maybe the God that I, I thought it was. Uh, maybe it seems a little harsh, a little remote, a little kind of hard teaching for us. In, in case there was any way of us kind of falling into that thinking, what we're looking at today is a passage where what we see is the lengths that Jesus, the king of the kingdom, goes to in order to give us that entry to the kingdom. We see the lengths that he's going to go to to rescue us. And what we also see is something of his, of his passion, of his own sorrow, if you like, his passion over those who he is trying to save. Jesus is the one who's come as, as saviour, he's come to seek and save the lost. And, uh, but actually what we see is his heart to those who fail to take up his offer. We're going to look at that today. But first, let's pick up where we left off last week. We were looking at uh, chapter 13 and verse 30. And Jesus says uh, this, this interesting statement about the kingdom of God. He says this, There are those who are last who will be first, and those who are first who will be last. So there's this amazing kind of thing about the kingdom of God, that somehow in the kingdom of God, the standards of the world are turned upside down. They're turned on their head, where perhaps in, in the world's eyes, things might look a certain way. In the kingdom's eyes, things are turned another way. So those who might seem at the front, of the queue, those who might seem first in the world uh, actually might come last in the kingdom and vice versa. So the message that Jesus has been bringing is, well, if you're a person who in the eyes of the world is coming last, if you're broken, if you're not doing too well in this life, uh, if you're aware of your need 
For God, if you're aware of your need for rescue, then, well, there's hope for you. The kingdom of God is for you. You are one of the last who could come first. But if, if in the world's eyes, uh, conversely, you're, you're doing well, you're rich, you're successful, and most importantly, you're self-sufficient in yourself, you have all you need, and consequently, you don't see your need for God, well, there's the danger for you, that you might be a first person who in the kingdom actually comes last. It's all about, it's not about how rich or wealthy or successful you are really, it's about your heart attitude. And, and, and if you don't recognize your need for God, then that's where you'll run into problems when you meet the true king who comes to turn the standards of the word upside down. So, um, so that's just a little intro in terms of uh, the kingdom of God and, and what Jesus has been teaching about it. So let's pick up on the next verse where we left off last week, and this is our passage today. We're going to be looking at Luke 13, verses 31 to 35, just a short uh, passage. And in the first verse, we're going to go through it verse by verse, and in the first verse it says this, at that time, the time when Jesus was teaching uh, and, and preaching and doing his ministry, at that time some Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. So what's going on here? What's this all about? So Jesus has been teaching in the towns and villages. He's been uh, healing people. He's been uh, doing this amazing ministry of his, uh, going to a place, massive crowds following him. He's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. Uh, he's been healing those who are, who, are, who are sick. He's been setting people free from, from demons. He's been doing this amazing ministry that he has. And he's been doing all of this in the province of Perea, uh, which is uh, part of the kind of first century Palestine, um, which was under the jurisdiction of this guy Herod, this king Herod. Now, you might remember from earlier on in, this, in the series that there were a number of different Herods. It gets quite confusing when you look at a Herod family tree because it just says Herod, 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 Herod. They've all got the same name. <laughs> but this, this particular Herod was one of this dynasty, this kind of dodgy dynasty that, that had power over this part of the Roman Empire. And from the point of view of Rome, I suppose they were viewed as uh, kind of a bit of a soap opera happening in the outer fringes of the empire. Um, but they were kind of tolerated by, by Rome and given power and given jurisdiction over the area. But from the point of view of first century uh, the, the Israel, they were a series of basically quite corrupt rulers. Okay? They did a bit for the economy, they built some cities, um, but really they were out for their own interests. They, they were just kind of hungry for power. And this Herod in particular is Herod Antipas. He was humoured by Rome and given power over his part of, of the empire. But, and for his part, he, he liked that. He appreciated that. He was happy with this arrangement. He enjoyed the wealth and prosperity that his position gave him. And he found it relatively easy to keep the peace, which was the one thing that Rome wanted him to do. But what we see here is that there was one small, well, actually major problem for Herod Antipas. And that was that the kingdom of God was starting to break out within his province. The kingdom of God was suddenly, uh, within his little area that he ruled, uh, was starting to break out. Things were starting to happen that were coming to his ears that, that were kind of slightly concerning to him. Now, he'd heard of uprisings. He'd heard of Messiah claimants before. At that time in history, there were rather a lot. And, uh, and he, what he'd tend to do is when they came up, he'd just squash them uh, before they had, had, uh, had any uh, power, before they'd amounted to anything. Um, and he'd had a number of popular religious leaders killed, 
most notably John the Baptist. So he, he was the, the Herod who killed John the Baptist. But this was different. These reports that he was hearing about Jesus were far more concerning to him. He was hearing about crowds of thousands gathering to hear this teacher, this Jesus of Nazareth. He was hearing about miraculous healings taking place, uh, demons coming out of people and lives completely transformed as a result. So he was intrigued and he wanted to see Jesus. But of course, as well, he wanted to kill him. He wanted to snuff him out. And the reason why he wanted to do this was because he just wanted to make sure that Jesus' popular support didn't become a threat to his own power or to put the precious kind of peace of Rome in jeopardy. So, so the Pharisees were right. They were, they were giving correct information. They were telling Jesus, yes, Herod wants to kill you, and they weren't lying. Um, but what about their own motives? You know, were they concerned about Jesus? Were the Pharisees wanting to come to Jesus and sort of give him a warning so that he could move on and continue his ministry? Were they supporting him? I think that's highly unlikely. From what we know of the Pharisees, it's much more likely that they had other motives. In fact, it's more likely that they wanted the same outcome for Jesus as Herod did. See, they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like his method, they didn't like his message, uh, because it challenged their own privileged status. You see, in, in, in that society, the Pharisees were top. The Pharisees were first. They were the, the, the top of the pile, as it were, in the religious world. They weren't necessarily kind of rich and famous in the, in the world, but, but it, within the religious hierarchy that they constructed, they were performing well, and they thought that they were in line, first in line for reward from God. And so they didn't like this message about the kingdom of God. Suddenly it's, it's open to everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. You don't have to have trained. You don't have to be a particular person. You don't have to be someone who's performed well religiously before God. You, anyone can enter the kingdom of God. And in fact, Jesus' message was, well, you enter the, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like a little child. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. It's about a heart that's just open to God and that wants to receive him, that wants to come to him. And, and this message was something that the Pharisees did not like because it challenged the way that they lived. So what they're doing here is feigning concern for Jesus. Oh, oh, look out, Herod, Herod's coming, he wants to kill you. Whereas actually what they're wanting to do is move him along to Judea, which is the province in which they have more power. So they're trying to get him to go somewhere where they have greater power over him. So whichever way you look at it, Jesus would have known that there were two groups of people here who wanted him dead, whether it was Herod or the Pharisees or both. So this was very real and very a very real and very hostile set of enemies. And this was kind of proper, proper opposition. It wasn't just people who kind of mildly didn't like Jesus. It were people that really hated him and everything he stood for, and they hated and were jealous of his popularity. This wasn't just kind of a blogger or a journalist, you know, making some kind of derogatory comments online about him and about his ministry. This was people who had the actual power to carry out their threats over him. So they were both, the Pharisees and, and obviously the king, Herod, were very uh, powerful, were very influential. So this was serious intimidation that Jesus was, uh, was experiencing. And I guess the first thing we can draw from that today for us, as we think about this, is that in the kingdom of God, there are opposing forces going on. So there's the kingdom of God, but there's also the, an opposing kingdom, which is the kingdom of the world, which we'll come to look at a bit more in a moment. And what that means is there is, there is a battle. There is a combat. And we know this, don't we? If you're Christians, you know that, that there is a battle going on. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world are battling against each other. And, and what we see is 
Well, if you live in the kingdom of God, you actually experience this opposition. If Jesus experienced this opposition, then we can expect the same today. And you know, it's only, we're only too aware of this, aren't we, at the moment. We know that there's parts of the world where there are Christians who are experiencing this kind of opposition. Okay, not just kind of mild distaste or mild sort of uh, ostracization. We know that there are places in the world where there are Christians being killed where there are people who are, who are intimidating Christians, where there are people being uh, hunted down and, 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 and killed uh, for following Jesus. We know in places like Iraq, places like Ukraine, places that are so kind of, we know about so much at the moment, so topical, that there is this threat. So there is this opposition that comes if you believe in Jesus. It's hard to, to kind of state it in any other way. It's hard to sort of dress it up for you. There is opposition. We as Christians... Uh, will face opposition, the same kind of opposition that Jesus faced. And I guess for parts of the world, that does mean real threat. Real threat to your lives, real threat to your homes. For us, thankfully, it doesn't really mean that, does it? We don't, we're not in that kind of living in that kind of threat. But it doesn't mean that we don't face opposition, and it's not from the same source. We do face opposition from very much the same source. But the opposition that we face is more subtle uh, than, than perhaps kind of out-and-out out death threats. If you like, if, if, if an out-and-out out kind of death threat is the equivalent of someone coming to you, attacking you with a sword, well, what we face is something a little bit more like um, the kind of proverbial frog that's in some hot water that's being slowly boiled. You see, our opposition comes in the form of attitudes, comes in the form of kind of things in society that are around us that sort of want to try and subtly strangle us and come around us like a blanket and almost kind of take away uh, our faith that way. We, that's the kind of opposition we face, isn't it, as Christians in this society. It's much more subtle, but it's real. Things like temptations, things like uh, attitudes that are just completely counter kingdom of God. And a big one for us is self-sufficiency. Because we, we generally... We're, we're well fed, we've got a roof over our head, um, we live in a stable society, it can be very easy to become sufficient in ourselves or at least to depend on things that are material rather than on, on God and on Jesus and to focus on his kingdom. So we face opposition as Christians and could you imagine what, I mean I, I, I don't know about you but if, if I experienced the kind of opposition that Jesus was experiencing here and the kind of opposition that that Christians in other parts of the world are experiencing now. I don't know about you, but it would, it would seriously derail me. I mean, if, if Luke gave me a piece of paper now that said, I mean, someone in the back row wants to kill you, it, it, it would seriously derail me. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to continue. I'd probably run out of the fire exit as fast as, as possible. Uh, and so, so there is a question, well, wow, how do we respond to this? And what, what is Jesus' response to this here? What is Jesus' response to this opposition? Because it's important to see what the king does in response to this opposition. Well, We've only done one verse, so we better look at the next one. Uh, in verse 32, he replied to the Pharisees who'd said, Jesus, Herod uh, wants to kill you. He says, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. It's an amazing response. It's an amazing response. We're going to look at what it's all about. And I think you, you, could, you could perhaps... Be forgiven for thinking, well, yeah, okay, you know, you talked about opposition, okay, he experienced death threats, but this is Jesus we're talking about here, right? This is, this is the Son of God. Of course he wasn't afraid of anyone. Of course he knew uh, the, the, the deal. Of course he had that kind of perspective. But what we need to remember about Jesus and hold intention is, yes, he was very much the Son of God. But at the same time, he was a man. He, he would have grown up in that society. He would have experienced pain. He knew what it was to be mortal, 
So um, he, these threats and this intimidation would have been very real to him. Okay, he would have, he would have experienced these threats and he would have uh, had to battle with um, this, uh, this uh, rejection that he experienced, this opposition. But how can Jesus have, and how can we have this kind of fearless response to opposition? Well, of course, the, the, thing, that, the thing here is that Jesus is seeing things from the perspective of the kingdom. So Jesus, as the king, has the perspective of the kingdom, and that's the perspective that we need to have, the perspective of the kingdom of God. Because in the eyes of the kingdom of God, you see, Herod takes on a very different uh, perspective. Okay, so in the world, he's powerful, he's rich, he's, he's someone to be feared, but in the kingdom of God, who is he? Well, Jesus tells us he's a fox. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I suppose similar to the kind of connotations that we have for it, it meant a sly man, a, a worthless man, or someone who didn't have honor. That was the kind of person that a fox was. And in fact, you know, Herod is one of the few people that we see in the New Testament that Jesus openly treats with contempt. So he is someone who thinks he's somebody, but in the significance of the kingdom of God, he is nobody. He is a nobody. In fact, even worse than a nobody, he is he's a puppet. He's a puppet of the kingdom of darkness. He's a puppet of the kingdom of Satan. You know, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, after he's baptized in, back in chapter 4, he's sent out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and Satan comes to him and tempts him three times. And one of the things that he says to him is, if you worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of this world in all of their authority and splendor. You will have them if you worship me. And of course, Jesus completely uh, rejects him and says, no, you need to worship God only and quotes scripture at him. Well, you know what? Herod, Herod is like the guy who took Satan up on his offer. Herod's like the guy who said, yeah, bring it on. I want authority, I want splendor, and I'll do whatever it takes. So what does the fox say? Who cares? He's just an agent of the devil, okay? And, and this is the amazing thing about Jesus' ministry because he has been in the daily habit of demonstrating his power over the devil. As, as, the, kingdom, uh, sorry, as the king of the kingdom of God, he has been combating and overcoming the kingdom of the evil one every single day as he executes his ministry. He's been in the habit of, uh, of demonstrating his power and authority through driving out demons, setting people free who've been bound by Satan, through healing people, um, setting people free from the hold that the devil has over their lives and telling them about, uh, about a kingdom where they can come to God, whoever they are, it doesn't matter what their background is, it doesn't matter where they've come from, what their past is, they can come to God, they can know God. This wonderful new message um, that he brought. And, and, and in that, he's been, he's been overcoming the power of the kingdom of, of the devil. So... And this is, the amazing thing is, is that um, the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, in the coming of Jesus, God is mounting an assault on the kingdom of Satan. Uh, and Jesus is the one who comes out to do it. Jesus is God's strategy. Jesus is God's plan. He's the one who's God sent into the world in order to overcome the evil one. I was thinking of any kind of modern day examples, and, and it's a little strange, but in, in some ways, Jesus is like Frodo Baggins. Okay, he's like the... <laughs> Bear with me. <laughs> He's like the one who go, who's sent into, right into the very heart of the kingdom. Frodo Baggins, you'll know in the Lord of the Rings, he takes the ring, he goes right to Mordor, he goes through this, it goes right into the heart of the kind of evil uh, ruler, um, and, he, and he throws the ring back into the fire. Or similarly, Lando Calrissian in The Return of the Jedi. You know that, you know that film? 
Oh yes, oh yes, of course you do. So Lando Carissian, he, gets the, he borrows the Millennium Falcon off Han Solo and he flies it right into the middle of the Death Star, doesn't he? He has to go right inside the Death Star and then he kind of puts his photon torpedoes out or whatever and destroys the Death Star. So this is, this is a little bit, <laughs> okay, there's kind of you know, limits to perhaps how much you can, you can play it, but, but this, this is kind of like what Jesus did. He went right into the kingdom, right into the center of the kingdom of, of darkness and he put himself... In a place of real risk, he put himself in a place of opposition right into the center of the kingdom in order to do what he knew he had to do, which was to provide salvation for us and for the world. That's what he did. And so Jesus, as he's going about his ministry, he's seeing things from the perspective of the kingdom, but he's also completely committed to the mission of the kingdom because he knows that if he does what he's sent to do, then he accomplishes salvation. And that's what drives Jesus that's what he loves doing day in, day out. That's what gets him up in the morning. That's what his earthly ministry is all about because he loves setting people free because he wants, to, he wants to do the thing that his father has asked him to do, which is to come and to live this life, to live this ministry, and ultimately to die on the cross in Jerusalem three days later to rise from the dead in order that we and the whole world might experience his amazing gift of forgiveness and entrance into the kingdom of God. And so, Jesus is determined to keep on going. Listen to the language he uses. He says, I must reach my goal. I must keep going today, tomorrow, and the next day in order to reach my goal. He knows that God's timing is completely going to be right, and he knows that he doesn't have to fear death threats from other people because he knows that he's going to die at the place where God has ordained. And we see that in the next verse. So he says, I will keep driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and the third day will reach my goal. Verse 33, in any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Now, when he says this, after kind of addressing Herod and giving a nice little message back to Herod, he's now sort of addressing the Pharisees. Okay, so their desire is to lure him back to Jerusalem where they have more power over him. And he reflects that desire back to them with a bit of a twist of interpretation. So he's, he's like he's saying to them, okay, you think you're doing your nation a service by getting rid of me. Whereas actually, if you get rid of me, what you'll be doing is repeating the mistakes of your ancestors, of the many religious leaders throughout history who time and time and again have rejected and killed the prophets that God has sent in order to correct them. So Jesus is clearly referring here to his own death. He knows it's coming. He's been hinting at it. Back in chapter 9, he predicted it very clearly to his disciples. Then later on, he talked about a baptism that he knew he had to undergo. Again, he's talking about his death. He knew that his mission would culminate in that. But, of course, when Jesus died in Jerusalem, he didn't just die as a prophet, but he died as the Son of God, the one who was going to pay the penalty for us as a sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could know peace with God. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter on the cross in order to save us. And one of the things that Jesus models in this, um, in this response and in this whole th- thing is that another kind of kin- kingdom principle, which is very simply, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will save it. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. See, there's, again, there's just something inescapable about this, <laughs> that there's this amazing free gift that we have from God. Anyway, any of us can become a Christian like this very easily just by believing in him. But 
you can't become a Christian without laying down your life. Because when you become a Christian, you become a disciple of Jesus. And what did he do? Well, he laid down his life. So we also need to lay down our life. What does that mean? Martyrdom? Some people, yes. But maybe not. But what it does mean is laying down your hopes, laying down your ambitions, your, your control over your life, your plans for the future, your money, your possessions, everything, doesn't it? It means laying down your life for him and giving it for him. And of course, what better thing is there to do with your life when you realize what it's like to then follow this amazing king, Jesus and as Jesus mentions Jerusalem here, um, it's almost as if that turns his attention to the place. And then we see the full force of his feelings about Jerusalem. And we'll, we'll read it and then we'll, we'll explain what it's, what it's saying. So, so he said, no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Then he says in verse 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? But you were not willing. And to understand this, you've got to understand a little about the importance of Jerusalem. You see, God's relationship with Jerusalem goes back a long way, at least a thousand years. Uh, before Jesus uh, was preaching, it was, it was captured by King David. It became the place where the kings of Israel ruled, the kings of Judah ruled throughout the Old Testament. It was a hugely significant place. It became the very center of the nation. And it, it was more than just a capital city. It was like a, it kind of had this iconic status that Jerusalem was the city of God, the city of David, the place where God uniquely chose to dwell on the earth with his people in the land. And of course, linked to that was the building of the temple, or the temples. There are a few temples throughout the Old Testament that were built there. And the temple was the place where God chose to dwell with his people. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the place where God established his covenant with, with David. It was almost like the kind of epicenter of God's kingdom on earth. So massively significant place. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is we start to see um, some prophetic words throughout the, the, the prophets um, about Jerusalem. We start to see some, some promises that God has about Jerusalem. So probably the most notable of these is in Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 52, uh, verses 8 to 10. And it says this, Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion which is another word for Jerusalem. When the Lord returns to Jerusalem, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Amazing prophecy. But Jesus isn't singing a song of joy here, is he? He's singing a lament. So what's going on? How do we get from that incredible prophetic word about Jerusalem to Jesus standing before it and, and saying, I can't believe that you've, you, you're not willing to accept me. See, Jesus is, is about to carry out this amazing rescue plan, but the irony of it is, is that it, he would be rejected by the very people that he came to rescue. And it's a bit like this. There's a story told of a, uh, in, from Western Canada, 
um, where sometimes you have these great forest fires that sweep across places. You get them in different parts of the world. And in Western Canada, there was a, a great forest fire that swept across a whole area, including a farm land that was owned by a farmer. And, uh, and the forest fire completely burnt down the farmhouse. And as the embers cooled, the devastated farmer came out to kind of survey uh, the ruins. And he noticed something burnt on the floor. He wasn't sure what it was, so he got a stick and prodded it. And he realized that it was a hen that had been burnt to death in the fire. And as he, as he knocked it with his stick and turned it over, to his surprise, three little chirping baby chicks came out from inside the burnt hen. So the hen had died in the flames in order to save her helpless brood. And I think this is amazing because this, this, this passage is often seen as sort of a, maybe the, the maternal side of God. You know, I want to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks together. And yes, that's true. You know, God invented the maternal instinct. It's, it's come from him. But there's more to it than that. It carries more of this sense of God wanting to gather them together in order to protect them, in order to protect them from what was coming, from the judgment that was coming. It's like an image, is like a parent wanting to protect their children from harm. You know, if you've got little kids, uh, you see them running into harm, obviously you, you intervene, don't you? You stop them going into harm. If you've got older children... It becomes harder to do that. If you've got teenagers, if you've got uh, adult children, and you see them going into harm, and you see them making decisions that you know aren't going to be for their best, you, what can you do? You try and, you try and advise them. You try and, uh, you try and give them as much wisdom as you can. But ultimately, it, it, you can't force them. And that's what it's like. You know, God doesn't force us to come to him. God doesn't force us to believe in him, but he, this is his heart, this is what he's like. He wants to gather us together under his wings of protection in order that when the judgment comes, he takes the hit, he takes the heat for us so that we can be like those chicks that burst out. How often have I longed to gather your children together? And you know, this is really pretty tragic, the sorrow that Jesus has here in knowing that Jerusalem was going to reject him he knew that Jerusalem, and with it, I guess on wholesale, the kind of nation of Israel, really, were going to plot against him, make false accusations against him. He knew that the crowds would be stirred to hatred against him. He knew that when, when Pontius Pilate uh, said to the crowds, look, I can't find anything wrong with him, what shall I do with him? That they were going to be stirred up to say, crucify him. The people of Jerusalem were going to turn on him. And this is because... They were seeing things from the point of view of the kingdom of the world. See, they were after a Messiah who was going to restore the nation uh, to this amazing kind of status, but completely judging by the standards of the kingdom of this world. They wanted a, a nation that stood up to other nations and other, king, uh, uh, and other kingdoms in the, in the world. But what Jesus offered was so much more. Jesus had such a bigger view. Obviously, he loved and he came to Israel, but his, his ministry was about the ends of the earth as well. His ministry was about seeing uh, this offer taken further out, as we see later in the New Testament through the book of Acts. Uh, it starts to be taken out, spread across the Roman Empire. Obviously, over time, it's, it's spread across the whole earth. It's a something small that grows like a mustard seed and then, and then grows to be the biggest tree. But, but they wouldn't have it. And you know what's chilling about this, 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 this prophecy about the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel? It really, it came true. Verse 35, look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Uh, this is a reference to a psalm, Psalm 118, uh, which is generally agreed to be a psalm about the Messiah coming. So Jesus is hinting that he's going to come back. Okay, he, he, he's died, he's, he's been resurrected, he's come, gone back to heaven, and he says, I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I'm going to come as the judge. I'm going to come to judge the world. And, 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 and this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is sort of a, a recognition of, yes, this is the Messiah coming. And you know what's interesting about Psalm 118 is that also it contains these verses. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. It's quite a familiar verse, and it's talking about how Jesus came as the cornerstone to, to, the, to his people, but they rejected it. But he's still going to be the cornerstone, but they're the ones who have rejected it. And this is how Jesus feels about it. Sorrow. I mean, the word gutted doesn't even come close. This is excessive sorrow over those who reject him. So what became of Jerusalem? Well, when we eventually get there, we'll get to Luke chapter 21 one day, maybe in a couple of years. <laughs> um, and, and in that, Jesus expands on a, on a kind of a longer prophecy, really, about the fate of Jerusalem. Uh, and it's, it's, it, you know, he, he kind of talks in terms of Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Uh, being falling by the sword, taken by prisoners, trampled by the Gentiles. And, and this all happened. This happened in AD 70. We know from the history books. The Romans attacked Jerusalem. They ransacked the city and they burnt down the temple. You can read it in Josephus' account. I was going to read a bit to you, but it was too graphic, to be honest, to read. And what's sad is that, as we know from current events, there's a sense in which they're still looking for external solutions, the nation of Israel, the, the city of Jerusalem. They're still focused on the lands. I mean, I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, if there's one place in the world that hasn't experienced peace and that has always had conflict, it's been the Middle East, it's been Israel. And it stems back from this. Jesus is kind of, um, you know, definition of what's going to happen, really, because... Of, 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 of them rejecting him. Now, it's not just a, to be applied, this, to, uh, to, to Jerusalem and to first century Israel. It's, it's got application for all of us as well. Okay, so all through these chapters, Jesus has been uh, laying out this amazing offer of entry to the kingdom, as we've seen, and, and that offer is still available today. That offer is available. We don't know how long for, as I said, enter through the narrow gate while you can, uh, but it is off. That is available here today. And just want to say to you, if you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you uh, that God wants to sing a song of joy over you, not a lament. That's what he wants. So let, in a way, like, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to kind of pressurize you, I'm not trying to use any underhand tactics, I'm just laying out what it says here. You know, let's, you know, let's heed this warning. Let's take it on board. And I just want to encourage you, if that's you, if, you're not, if you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, please do talk to someone today about how you can become a Christian. I'd love to talk to you myself. Come and grab me in the break or at the end of the meeting. I would love to talk to you about that. Um, but there's one question left to address, perhaps just for all of us. Uh, and, and that is, well, you could look at this and say, well, look, you know, Jesus came f- for his people 
uh, they rejected him. So what happened? What, what's, what's left of, this, of the mission Jesus came to fulfill? If, if Israel rejects it, what, what will happen? And, and also, what about all the prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the restoration of Jerusalem as the place where God will dwell? Uh, we looked at that one in Isaiah 52. What, what happens, it is a, re, a genuine question, what happens to the unique status of Jerusalem under the covenant? Okay, very, very quickly. <laughs> Look at this, it's quite a, maybe a bit theological, but, uh, but it's an important question that hangs. If Jerusalem rejects Jesus, what about the status of Jerusalem under the new covenant. Well, that very simply, and without going into great detail, it passes to the church. Okay, the church of Jesus Christ becomes the new place on the earth where God dwells and where God uniquely chooses to be the center of the kingdom on earth. The church is the new Jerusalem. And it includes ethnic Jews and it includes ethnic non-Jews. But in fact, ethnic boundaries are no longer significant in this new city So why is Jesus so focused on Jerusalem? Why is he so focused on going there and dying? Why does he keep going in spite of opposition and in spite of the sorrow that knowing that he'd be rejected by his people? This is why it was for his church. It was for his people, the new Jerusalem. He could see, as it says, the joy set before him. He endured the cross. He did it for us. He did it for us. And he did it for, for all the worldwide church. It was, for him. it was for us that he did it. Just quickly to dip back into Isaiah 52. It says, Burst into songs of joy together, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of God. And that's what's happening through the church. That's what's happening through uh, the worldwide church today, that the ends of the earth are seeing the salvation of God. It's fulfilled through the church. So just as a final point of application for us all, what we see here is how much Jesus loves the church. If there's anything we see, we see that. How much he was prepared to go for, go through, in order to purchase us for himself. So I guess, as as a closing point for us, how much do we love the church? How much are we giving ourselves for it? How much are we prepared to lay our lives down in order to to give ourselves for his church. Let's pray.